0: The Bible reading this morning is Romans chapter 7 verse 21 to chapter 8 verse 11. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen.
1: Wonderful. If you've got your Bible there and you want to open it back to Romans chapter 8, that would be really helpful. I uh, had my Bible open at Romans chapter eight uh, for quite a lot of of this week. Uh, And one day uh, I was sat at the table uh, with Bible open at Romans chapter eight, thinking about this morning. uh, And as I was thinking, there was uh, the sound of uh, the letterbox flapping. Uh, The postman had been letters through your door and all that. Uh, And when I went into the hallway, uh, there on the floor there was uh, an envelope, a golden envelope. I don't know if anyone else in the Arkham area received a golden envelope this week. Maybe I was the only privileged one. Uh, but this golden envelope was inviting me to play the people's postcode lottery, uh, and it was promising me—I didn't open it—but it was promising me on the envelope some kind of share in thirty thousand pounds a day. Uh, I don't know whether that was all going to be mine or whether I had to share it with lots of other people. Uh, but as I picked up the golden envelope and I, I walked back to, to my desk uh, to think again about uh, Romans 8. I was in a bit of a reflective mood uh, and I started to think, I wonder if anyone plays the people's postcode lottery. Does everyone just do what I've just done and put the thing in the, in the bin? And I began to think, well, why, why would someone play the people's postcode lottery? Why would people play any kind of lottery? I'm sure there's lots of uh, reasons or motivations, uh, but surely one reason and motivation has to be security, doesn't it? It's got to be security. People think, if I had the winning ticket, if I had £30,000 a day, surely that would equal some measure of security surely some of the buffetings and sufferings and trials of life would be made much easier by £30,000 a day. I think we all long uh, for that assurance of security, don't we? (laughs) Deep down we find within our our hearts a deep longing to know that in the end everything is going to be okay. Okay. And Romans chapter eight is written to give God's children that assurance. Romans chapter eight is all about security and assurance. And it's a glorious chapter. And we're gonna spend four weeks in Romans chapter eight. We're gonna slow down a little bit and just listen to God. And my prayer is for myself, And for us as a church, that God would speak deeply into our hearts and grant us that real, unshakable assurance that in Christ, we are secure. God wants that for his children. Assurance is important. When a child is insecure, maybe they're unsure of a parent's love, or maybe they're fearful of condemnation, that can produce in a child all sorts of dysfunctions. I think the same is true for us as Christians. When we're unsure of God's love, when we're fearful of condemnation, that can produce dysfunctions in our life as Christians. And this glorious chapter, let me read to you how it begins. It begins with the words, no condemnation. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And listen to how the chapter ends. The chapter ends with no separation. Chapter 8, verse 39. There is nothing in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wonderful, wonderful assurance. No condemnation no separation, absolutely secure. And that's why this chapter has been treasured by Christians in the church throughout the centuries. I'm sure every Christian here this morning would, would like gladly and willingly and joyfully affirm the truth of those verses with their minds. And yet the reality is, Sometimes, as we live in this world, we don't always feel secure. Although we know the truth, there it's on the page, it doesn't always feel like that. Sometimes it doesn't get to our hearts. I know that's true of you, true of me, and I know also from talking with some of you, it's true of you, you as well. We don't always feel with our emotions. That we are safe and secure. Why is that? Why is that the case? Well, there are lots of things we face in this world that threaten our experience of assurance. There are lots of shadows that make us feel insecure. I think there are three big ones. Three big ones that we're going to look at as we go through Romans chapter eight. The first is is suffering. We've already thought about suffering when we were in chapter five. Suffering can affect our experience of assurance and security. Suffering makes us feel lonely. It comes in all sorts of shapes and size. It can isolate us physically and emotionally. Suffering, suffering can make us feel fragile. The second one is uncertainty. Uncertainty about the future. Sure, like me, you have your plans for tomorrow. Monday, you know what you're going to do. Get up, have a shower, go to work, see the patients, come home, have tea, see the family, go to bed. (laughs) You know, we have our plans for tomorrow, don't we? And yet the reality is none of us really knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And when we begin to think about that and we think about all the possibilities, all the things that could happen, when we let our minds run to the worst-case scenario, it makes us feel insecure. The third thing, perhaps the biggest, is, is sin. Suffering, uncertainty, and sin. There's a sense that every person in this world has some awareness of their failings. But for the Christian, it's different. We often feel keenly our sinfulness Sometimes it's painful and that's where we left off last, last time we were in Romans, wasn't it, in chapter seven? Do you remember Paul's anguish cry? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He was struggling, battling with his own sinfulness. He had this new desire in his inner being at the core of who he was. He loved God's law, he delighted in it. But in his flesh, he saw this weakness, this sinfulness. And so there was a, a battle the experience of that conflict for the Christian can erode our assurance. Particularly when the enemy comes in and whispers things like this. If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't have this struggle. This battle with sin, as I said, that's the immediate context for the opening words of Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. God wants us to know that when we're in Christ, even though we battle with the ongoing presence of sin in our lives, the reality is there is no condemnation. And I believe in the original that's emphatic that the sentence begins with the negative no, not any condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Not now. Not forever. And one day when we stand before the judge of all the earth, all those who are in Christ are going to be pronounced innocent. Maybe there's someone here this morning that just needs to let those two words settle into their hearts again. (laughs) No condemnation. No condemnation in Jesus. So as I said, this chapter is all about assurance and security. And what we're going to see is that our assurance as believers is absolutely sure. We can be absolutely sure that we are saved and secure because our assurance is grounded and founded and rooted in God himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our assurance is wonderfully Trinitarian. We're going to see that even in the passage today. And particularly in in the beginning of Romans chapter 8 is the the role of the Holy Spirit. The particular focus is the role the Holy Spirit plays in our assurance as God's children. 11 times in 11 verses, we have mention of the Spirit. So listen to how the chapter starts. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There the Holy Spirit is is pictured as a a liberator, someone who's coming along and setting free captives. Remember, we learned, didn't we, in in chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, that in Adam, we are all under sin. Sin rules us, reigns us like a king. Sin is a master. Sin is a general that calls us to present ourselves for service. And sin leads to death. But here it's the work of the Spirit to set us free. When the Spirit unites us to Christ by faith, we are set free. Notice this isn't a process. It's past tense. The Spirit has set us free. That's true of every believer in Jesus Christ. The moment we place our faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit invades our person comes to live in us takes all that belongs to jesus christ his obedience his perfection and applies it to us that's why paul can say there's no condemnation for the spirit has set you free we often think don't we about when it comes to this idea of no condemnation being being justified we think about the cross and the work of jesus christ the son and we all know the necessity of the death of Christ if we're going to be set free, if we're going to be redeemed and justified. But here Paul is telling us that equally important is the role of the Spirit. Without the work of the Spirit, the the death of Christ, although it happened in history, it can be of no benefit to us until the Spirit takes the truth about Jesus and applies it to our lives. So both the work of the Spirit and the work of Christ on the cross, they belong together. They're distinct, but we shouldn't separate them. As we look at this uh, passage today, uh, we've just got two points as we think about this work of the Spirit in setting us free so that we have no condemnation. And the first point is the foundation of the Spirit's liberating work. That's the first thing we're going to think about, the foundation of the Spirit's liberating work. I said it's really important that we don't separate uh, the person of Jesus Christ from the the person of the Holy Spirit. What we're going to see is that the the role of the Spirit to take all that belongs to Christ and uh, and apply it to us. And the foundation of the liberating work of the Spirit is the death of Christ. So look at verse 3. So the Spirit set us free, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The liberating work of the Spirit rests upon what God has done. Remember back in chapter 7, we thought about the role of the law, didn't we? The law promised life, it promises me new life. But actually, the law brings. Me, death, God's good law, it's holy. There's nothing wrong with the law, but the problem is me, my flesh, I'm weak. I cannot keep the law. The law is good, but the law is made weak because of my flesh. I cannot keep the demands of the law, but what I cannot do, God has done. What I want us to see this morning is that our assurance rests upon what God has done. To say that I'm saved and I know it and that I'm eternally secure in Christ is not arrogant. That's humility. Because it acknowledges what God has done for me. What did God do? Well, God, it says, sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. God sent his own son. His own precious, perfect, only son. I can uh, imagine a scenario like this. This is understandable to me. God in heaven looks down on earth and he sees his creatures and his creatures all love him. They all follow his, his law. They all honor him and give thanks to him. And so the father says to the son, son, go and see the creatures that we've made. Go and be one with them. Go and spend time with them. Go and enjoy their adoration. That's the kind of story my mind would come up with. But that's not the gospel story, is it? God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. His own beloved, perfect, precious son, sent into a world of God-haters, rebels, he comes right down to be one with us, in the likeness of simple flesh. It's like a very careful phrase that it guards two things. It guards Jesus sinlessness. He doesn't come in simple flesh. Paul's very careful. He he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. If Jesus came in sinful flesh, he had sin of his own to bear and he couldn't be our savior. But he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. But that phrase also guards Jesus' humanness. Paul only uses the word likeness because it's likeness of sinful flesh. (laughs) Jesus came in our flesh, don't, don't mistake. He took on our humanity. He knew what it was like to be tired. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He experienced our bodily weaknesses. He came into a world of, of God-haters and sinners, and he came with this express purpose. He came for sin. He came for sin. What does Paul write? In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh So that our sin might be condemned in him. So you can see the logic of these verses, can't you? No condemnation because Jesus Christ came in the flesh and was condemned in our place. That's what happened at the cross. And it's as though Paul is calling to us this morning come and see. Come and see why there's no condemnation for you because Jesus was condemned these verses made me think of a song it's a christmas song Uh, it says this it's a come and see song oh come guilty and hiding ones come there is no need to run see what your god has done so come though you have nothing come he is the offering come come see what your god has done what we're called to do this morning is see what God has done we are secure we have assurance and this work of Jesus Christ is the foundation of the Spirit's work of liberation we mustn't lose sight of this in your struggling don't lose sight of this don't lose heart see what your God has done Another song that I thought of as I was looking at these verses, we're going to sing it at the end, it goes like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, would I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin? Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. What wonderful assurance we have. What a firm foundation upon which the Spirit works. That's the first thing, the the foundation of the Spirit's liberating work. Here's the second point up there, the goal of the Spirit's liberating work. What's the end? What's the purpose? Well, listen to verse 4. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, verse 3 is all about what what Jesus Christ has done for us. And verse 4 is all about what Christ, through his Spirit, does in us. Paul says that in union with Christ, the law of God is fulfilled in us. What does that mean? Does that mean we live a perfect life? Does that mean now all that we ever know in our lives is perfect obedience to God's law? Now what it means is that when the Spirit of God comes in to live within us, a transformation begins. We're not perfect, but there's a new desire. And this is why even though Christians are not under the law, we've read about that in Romans, we are not lawless. Because the Spirit comes and puts the law within our hearts. And this work of the Spirit, this transformation, is the goal of the Spirit's work. To put it in another way, another kind of angle on it, rather than the law being fulfilled in us. If you just look on to verse 29 of chapter eight, we have this purpose, this goal, put in different words. It says, for those he foreknew, he also also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's the goal to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Maybe an illustration might help here. I think this sermon's probably been a bit illustration-light uh, so far. So we'll, we'll have an illustration. Imagine someone buys a, a new house. The previous tenant had lived in that uh, house for 50 years. They'd never changed anything. All the furniture was, was dated all the wiring needed to be re- redone, the plumbing, plastering. Anyway, a new, a new owner moves in, and he begins some renovations. The interiors are stripped out, the old pattern carpets are taken up. Plumbing's redone, the wiring's redone. There's a big extension over here, a kind of new wing thrown out there. The new, new owner has great plans, for the house once it's done new furnishings are put in that match the owner's taste they display something of the owner's personality and character I think there's an analogy there with the liberating work of the spirit in our lives, this is what the spirit does the foundation of the spirit's work is the death of Christ and the goal of the spirit's work is to make us like Christ, to conform us to the image of his Son. Maybe when we first come to Christ, we think, we know that there are some changes to be made. But in our minds, those changes are a bit like moving the furniture around. But the Spirit has a much deeper work, more drastic renovations that He's going to do. As Paul describes these renovations, this work of the Spirit, he does so with reference to the mind and the body. The mind and the body, and we're going to have to move a bit more quickly. He speaks about the work of the Spirit in our, in our minds and our bodies. When Paul writes about the mind, he doesn't mean only our intellect, our brains. The mind is the, the core of who we are. He also Uses the phrase our inner being. We could think of the mind as like the control center of our whole person. At the start of verse 5, he begins to talk about the mind. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit describes two types of people there, those who have the flesh, and they set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who have the spirit and they set their minds on the things of the spirit. I think it's really clear, we don't make the mistake. Paul isn't writing about two kinds of Christians here. He's not writing about some Christians who have the minds set on the flesh and some Christians who have the mind set on the spirit. No, he's writing about those who belong to Christ and trust him and those who, who don't belong to Christ and don't. Trust Him. This life in the Spirit, this living in the Spirit, it is more than just an experience. It's a whole new reality. We, we were in the flesh, but when we are saved, we are tr- translated to this new realm in the Spirit. And that's true with every Christian. That's not some secondary experience that a Christian has to have. So look at verse 9. Paul says confidently of these Christians in Rome, of all of them, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. There's no such thing as a Christian who has not received the Holy Spirit. The very definition of a Christian is someone who has received the Holy Spirit. All Christians live in the spirit, and that means a new set of the mind. Verses 5 to 9, they're not prescriptive. Paul's not saying, Okay, set your mind on the things of the spirit. He says that in some of his other letters. But these are they're descriptive, they're describing what it's like for the Christian. The Christian has a new mindset. I think it's helpful to think about this new mindset with another illustration. It's an illustration I borrowed from a man called uh, Stuart Olliott. He talks about imagining your life as being like a factory, <laughs> a factory that's come under new management. In the, in the head office, there's a new boss. All the machines are still the same old machines. All the employees are still the same old employees. But there at the control center, there's a new boss. The new systems, new protocols. It will take time to change. It'll take time for the boss to, to, to press out the way he does things into the whole factory. But with the takeover, something definitive has changed. Again, is a bit like an analogy of, of what it means when we are in the spirit, when we are born again, when we come to know Jesus. The spirit invades our control center. We have a new mind. That's why Paul can say in chapter seven that in his inner being, in his mind, he delights in God's law. Something fundamental has, has changed. changed. And even though he still lives in the flesh, even though the machines and the employees are still all the same, old machines and employees, even though he feels that sin dwells within him, praise God he knows that the Holy Spirit is powerful. The Holy Spirit will have his way. The Holy Spirit is intimately acquainted with the Lord Jesus. There's only one Holy Spirit. One Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary at Jesus' conception. One Holy Spirit who descended upon Jesus at his baptism. One Holy Spirit who empowered his ministry. One Holy Spirit who gave him victory in the wilderness over the temptations of Satan. Intimately acquainted with the Lord Jesus and his humanity. And that same Holy Spirit dwells in every Christian. He knows his work. He knows the Son. And he has the power to conform us into the image of his Son. Do you see what this means for the struggle of Romans 7? Remember that that cry, oh wretched man that I am. If you're a Christian, you know something of that feeling that Paul is feeling. When you have that feeling, sometimes that undermines your assurance, doesn't it? But do you see that 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 desire to cry out, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, that shouldn't undermine our assurance. That should feed our assurance because it's the very evidence That the spirit dwells in us. That we have this new mindset. And the presence of the spirit within us now gives us certain and sure hope for the future. That's where Paul goes on to talk about our bodies in verses 10 to 11. Listen to these glorious verses. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you... Although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you see what Paul's saying? The presence of the spirit in your life that has now in the presence made your life a battleground the presence of that same spirit also secures your future resurrection. Paul talks about life for our mortal bodies. Do you see the the logic of verses 10 and 11? That spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that fact of history, that same Spirit who took Jesus from the grave and exalted him to the right hand of the Father, if that same Spirit dwells in you, which He does in every Christian, then the grave just cannot be the final word. It just can't. You know, there's words ashes to ashes, dust to dust the spirit lives in you, that that can't be the end. He will certainly give life to your mortal body. The goal of the spirit's liberating work is to conform you to the image of the son Jesus Christ in every way. In this world, that's that's a process. We're incomplete, we're not finished. But on resurrection day, We will truly bear the image of the sun. (laughs) Every now and again, uh, someone comes in the surgery uh, and they sit down in the chair, and I kind of have this usual line that I say to them uh, How can I help? (laughs) And uh, on a few occasions, uh, people have replied, Could you give me a new body? Some of you here, I'm sure, kind of know something of that sentiment. Can you give me a new body? All of us, if we live long enough, we will know exactly that sentiment. These bodies are weak and fragile. They get sick. they feel pain. These bodies are fallen. Infected and affected by sin, these bodies labour along under the curse like the rest of creation. But Paul says, listen to again to the certainty of these words, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. That's just glorious, isn't it? What a prospect. No aches, no pains. No tiredness, no weakness, no more indwelling sin. Perfected in His presence. On that day, the Spirit's work will be complete. So, this morning, uh, brothers and sisters, be assured, don't lose heart. Don't, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not any. Not one drop. Not an ounce of condemnation. Don't lose heart in the battle with sin. Be assured that very struggle is evidence that the spirit of God dwells in you. And resurrection day is coming. And on that day, we will understand in a way that we could never understand in this world what Paul means when he says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free. We sang about it, didn't we, in that song? The sky, not the grave, is our goal. Praise God for his Holy Spirit who lives within us.
0: We're going to sing together uh, now a song